And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. Uh, we're going to continue on our journey through missions history today, and we're going to talk about Scottish and Celtic missions. Today, our guest is Dr. Michael Haken. Uh, Dr. Haken was born in England to Irish and Kurdish parents. Uh, Dr. Haken serves as professor of church history and biblical spirituality at Southern Seminary. He is a respected scholar, an acclaimed historian, and a gift to the global church. Uh, I'm thankful to be able to call him a, a cherished colleague, but also to be able to call him friend. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. Dr. Haken, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Thank you. When we talk about early Celtic and Scottish mission, you know, what time period are we talking about? Yeah, roughly, uh, well, it depends when you date Patrick. Uh, Patrick normally is dated his birth somewhere between 390 and 430. His mission to Ireland then comes roughly when he's around uh, 35, 40. So that would place it somewhere around 430 to 460 is when that is initiated. Again, depends when you want to, uh, you're talking about the end of that period. Uh, depends whether or not you want to include the kind of Anglo-Celtic missions that have been subsumed by the Church of Rome uh, with people like Boniface. But roughly you're looking at up to about 700 where the church in uh, Ireland and Scotland and Northern England were independent. So roughly then from around uh, 430 to about 700, 730, so about 300 years. Okay. Okay. So, and you you already alluded to Patrick, but the next question was, you know, who were some of the, the key mission figures during this time? And can you tell us some about who they were, their life? Yeah. Patrick obviously is, is the central figure at the beginning, standing at the fountainhead. There is debate about whether or not he is the first missionary to, to Ireland. There is a, a very shadowy figure named Palladius, of which there really is no clear evidence of what he did. Patrick's mission to Ireland is extraordinary because it, it really stands as unique in the period of time, the kind of uh, period around the, the fall of the Roman Empire. And I, th I think part of the problem that the church has in this period is that the church has bought into a kind of Romano-centric view of the world in which the Roman Empire and the Romans themselves are seen really as kind of the center of um, humanity or the, the kind of a tip of humanity or the elite of humanity, if you, if you will. And once the Roman Empire had been evangelized, there is no mission. Basically, the the empire had embraced the uh, the the leadership of the empire had embraced Christianity. There is no mission going out by and large to the barbarians, quote unquote, outside the empire. Um, it really is quite striking. 
And this is different from what's going on in the eastern part of the empire, uh, eastern uh, Roman Empire, where you do have mission into Persia, Afghanistan, in fact, all the way to China. But in the western uh, kind of sphere, there is really, Patrick stands as, as almost totally unique. There is a figure named Ninian in the probably the very early 400s in uh, a mission station in very southern Scotland. Patrick's born in um, somewhere in what is now either England or Wales, very possibly southern Scotland, and will be taken initially as a captive to Ireland. This uh, occurs around the time the Roman Empire is collapsing. The year 406-407 is a critical year. The Rhine River, which formed the kind of the, the barrier between the empire and those whom they called barbarians in Germany, froze. It had never frozen before in Roman experience, but Europe is entering a mini ice age. And in that winter, somewhere around 200,000 German Germanic barbarian warriors crossed the Rhine. And there were three legions stationed in Britain, and they all three are recalled to stem the tide, and they never return. And in the wake of that, Irish pirates, Ireland had never been conquered or never even attempted to be conquered by the Romans, which also is a bit of an interesting mystery as to why Rome did not attempt a conquest of Ireland. They begin to raid the, the British coast. And in one of these raids, Patrick is taken. He talks about thousands being taken into captivity. And he'll spend uh, six to seven years in captivity. And so I, I tend to date Patrick's birth around 390. So his captivity, he's 16. He says that specifically. In, we have two documents from his hand. If we didn't have these documents, we would, again, he would be a shadowy figure as well. Very shadowy. Mm -hmm. Because he's not mentioned in Celtic literature for another, I think, about 150 years after his death. These documents, though, place him, in my mind, within that last few decades of Roman rule in the West. And he tells us when he was 16, he was taken captive, uh, spends six or seven years in captivity, escapes, but then will go back roughly when he's around 40 years old uh, to begin really his life's work. So this is somewhere around the year 430 and will not return to, to Britain. He talks about the spirit, uh, having been bound by the spirit, to stay in Ireland until he dies. And his death would occur somewhere in the 460s. And really a quite a remarkable, absolutely remarkable ministry. Thousands converted, elders appointed, obviously churches planted, etc. Mm, that's fascinating. So yeah, Patrick, obviously we, we know about him historically. There's There's been a lot of, yeah, even today, there's there's holidays for him. There's lots of conversation that surrounds him. You know, one of the other missionary figures of this time was Columba. Can you, for our listeners, can you kind of compare and contrast uh, Patrick and Columba for us a little bit? Yeah, Columba is somewhat later. Uh, he's in the 500s. Columba was a monk in Ireland, found himself tempted and succumbing to the temptation of stealing a psalter. And uh, it initiates actually a degree of violence. The monastery that he stole it from and takes it back to his own monastery, the monastery that he stole it from was linked to uh, uh, one of these Irish chieftains 
of which there were prior to Patrick, there were about 150 of these little kingdoms in Ireland. Everybody who had a hill uh, stuck his palisade on it, and he was a king. Anyway, the people who were associated with this particular monastery that he had stolen it from uh, launched an all-out attack on Columbus Monastery. And in the ensuing battle, a number of people were killed. And Columbo was smitten deeply with remorse. And he went into exile, self-imposed exile. And the exile was on a little island called Iona. And I, on a clear day uh, from Iona, off the coast of Ireland, it's off the coast of a very large, a large, larger island in the Inner Hebrides called Mull. Mull's famous in recent years for being a, the site of a castle that Paul McCartney bought. I've been to Iona on one occasion. It's quite a barren Ireland in many ways. From Iona, on a clear day, you can see Ireland. He didn't want to, he wanted to go into, he needed, he felt he needed to go into exile, but he still wanted to be able to see his homeland. And for Iona, Iona becomes the base of, of missions into Scotland, all of Scotland, into Northern England. Really quite a successful mission in terms of the evangelization of the Picts and the Scots, uh, two different groups. The Picts were more original. Scots are originally from Ireland, a group from uh, known as the, the Scoti. Again, unlike Patrick, we have no documentation from Columba's own hand, but we do have a life of Patrick of, uh, of Columba, written by one of the abbots of Iona, Adam Nan, which would be about a hundred years after his time, uh, drawing upon stories, oral tradition, and maybe documents that have been since lost. He becomes the confidant of kings and rulers in that part of the world. One fun story of uh, the the life of Columba is he and a group of two groups of monks in two separate boats are crossing a very narrow lake and deep. And uh, suddenly a huge sea monster comes up and gobbles up. <laughs> this, is, this is from the 690s, gobbles up one of the boatloads of the monks. Columbus horrified. And uh, when they, I guess the monster wasn't satisfied in terms of what he ate, came up again and Columba curses, curses the sea monster in the name of Jesus. That lock is Loch Ness. So it's fascinating that as early as the 690s, you've got these stories. Uh, I, I, I obviously, it's been embellished enormously, but there must have been something there, the 690s. But anyway, Columba, Columbus really is, is a critical figure in the mission to, to Scotland and Northern England, which will have important ramifications down the road. And then there is another figure. Uh, Columba means dove in latin there's another figure whose name has a similar import columbanus and he goes around the same time as columba to he instead of going to ireland he goes to the continent with the wave of uh, germanic uh, conquest on western europe europe really had to be re-evangelized mm-hmm. and the central figures who do this are the celts the celtic church and columbanus we have uh, quite a number of letters from him and he initially goes to what is now France, then the kingdom of Gaul, is kicked out because of his John the Baptist-like prophetic denunciations of the king's immorality uh, with a number of women, and ends up at a place called Bobbio in northern Italy, where he founds a monastery, which becomes a very, very important center for, for mission, and particularly 
uh, the copying of the scriptures. Mm. And Columbanus is a very, very significant figure. But there are others as well. I was in um, a number of years ago, my wife and I took a, a trip down the Rhine River and we stopped on, I forget the name of the town, but we stopped at a town. And as we came into the town, there was a huge statue of an early medieval figure. And it was a man named St. Killian. And I thought Killian's not a German name. It's an Irish name. And sure enough, as I read the plaque, it, it was uh, this man was a Celtic monk who had come to that region, preached and established churches, etc. So the Celts are really quite remarkable. The first, the first outreach to the the one people group in Europe that were everybody believed were impossible uh, to save. They were beyond the pale. The Vikings. The first impact. The first outreach to these people is through the Celtic monks. Okay, that's helpful. So yeah, so even some of the work that was going on in the islands ended up having uh, ramifications for mainland Europe and Roman Empire and all these kinds of places. That's that's fascinating. Reaching a specific people group with the gospel demands specialized training and a global vision. Southern Seminary supports these ministry goals through theological education that is trusted for truth. A degree in missiology from Southern Seminary provides students with the biblical foundation and theological training necessary to take the gospel into all the world. The program prepares graduates to serve as missionaries, church planters, and ministry leaders anywhere in the world. To learn more about Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, and doctoral degrees available through the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary, go to sbts.edu bgs, or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. There, you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. The web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. Do you have any examples of, of women who were actively engaged in some of the Celtic mission efforts? Or is there any historical data there with any uh, female involvement? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question. And I mean, there are a number of women who become saints, like St. Bridget. But the sources are very, 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 very sparse. There is a woman named uh, Hild in Northumbria. These women were not going on missionary journeys per se. She embraces a celibate lifestyle at the age of 33. She's nobility and um, founds uh, two important monasteries and becomes known as a remarkably wise individual whom a number of kings in Northern England, uh, regularly go and talk to for advice and so on, and would die at the age of 66 in 680. Um, her story is recorded by Bede, who has a, a real interest in, even though he's, he's, he's Anglo-Saxon, he's got a real interest in, in the, the Celtic missions. So women, I don't know of any examples, there may be some of women going on missionary journeys, but they, there are women who uh, end up embracing, embracing what we would describe as a really kind of a monastic lifestyle who okay. have uh, have an important impact. Okay. Yeah. And we know kind of even historically that the the monks were the ones who kind of really took up that missionary effort, the missionary work in many ways, kind of thinking through early church into middle ages and those kinds of things. So that's good. What about, uh, you've talked about this some, but can you talk some about the geography? You know, obviously we think about Celtic and Scottish mission, they're on the islands. They're not in mainland Europe. So can you talk some about how geography impacted their mission efforts, you know, positively or negatively? 
Yeah, given the inaccessibility to some degree of Scotland, Scotland's, you know, the topography is rugged. Uh, the Romans had, when they initiated their conquest of the Roman province of what they came to call Britannia, which is England, Wales, and so on, they initially did go into Scotland, Hibernia, sorry, Caledonia, Hibernia's Ireland, but they withdrew eventually down to what we call now call Hadrian's Wall, which is just below the border of uh, Scotland and England, partly because of the topography. The topography was very harsh and it was not easy to traverse. Mm. And so it would be Celtic monks from the island of Iona who you'd have to be very fit to be able to, to navigate. There's no roads per se, the Scottish Highlands. I have been there. My wife is Scottish. It's an absolutely gorgeous part of the world, but it's very, very rugged. And one can imagine the challenges that would face these monks as they set out to to evangelize this area. Mm. Uh, Ireland's quite different. Ireland was uh, also challenging, but in a different way. And they, there the challenges were more social. I mean, there are mountains in Ireland, but the, you can easily traverse the island and not have to go through the mountains, etc. But what you have there is about 150, literally 150 different kingdoms. You know, as I said earlier, you got all these characters who have an extended family, stick a palisaded fort on a hill and declare themselves the king of the surrounding district. And there's all kinds of infighting, particularly with cattle stealing. There's a lot of stories in the Celtic lore of uh, cattle raids that will continue to some degree into the, the Celtic period, the Celtic church's period. And so that's obviously poses its own challenge. It's not an urban culture, so there aren't towns, there aren't roads, there would be obviously tracks formed, uh, etc. So it's got its own challenges in terms of getting around the island. Uh, Patrick talks about having to give gifts to all these kings. Uh, one of the ways he would get uh, permission to preach in a given area is he would have to give gifts. And Patrick had inherited a fair amount of money. And so he ends up, he, he tells us he basically bankrupted himself, giving, giving away gifts to various, various uh, of, of these kings so that he could preach in their territories. Wow. Yeah. So just using that to gain favor and then allowing the yeah. gospel to spread and flow that way. I want to shift gears a little bit. Can you, you know, obviously you've, you know, much about this, this era, but for our listeners who maybe are not as familiar Maybe two to three books that you would recommend on kind of the mission efforts during this time? Yeah, probably the uh, on Patrick. Uh, there is a book by Philip Freeman uh, uh, called Patrick of Ireland. There is a book called The Celtic Church, 300 to 1200 AD. And the name of the author just uh, escapes me. I can give it to you later so that if people write in or contact you vis-a-vis sure. -vis it. Hardinge, uh, Leslie Hardinge, H-A-R-D-I-N-G-E. Hardinge, and it's called the Celtic Church, uh, 300 to 1200. It basically covers pretty well all what I've talked about, uh, obviously in a lot more depth. Okay. There's a, you know, I want to ask a fill in the blank question here. Many people may not know that St. Patrick blank, or many people may not know about St. Patrick that blank, fill in the blank for us. Yeah. He was not Irish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everybody thinks he was Irish. He wasn't. He was. He'd either be English today or Welsh. The both groups claim him, or Scottish. I remember getting into a, a silly uh, argument with my 
parents-in-law who had been taught in school that he was Scottish. I was born in England. I was insisted that he was English. And then I was once on a preaching trip in Wales about uh, 15 years ago, and I was told uh, emphatically he was Welsh. I'd learned by that point not to not to debate the the hearer, <laughs> uh, the, the the speaker, and I, I let it go. He's born somewhere on the western coast of what is now uh, England, Ireland, or uh, England, Scotland, or Wales, but he was not Irish. <laughs> yeah, that's that's helpful. You know, as we're thinking through things we can learn from history and kind of how we can apply some of those things today. Well, what are two or three things that we can learn from Celtic mission efforts that, that might be helpful for us as we think about global mission efforts today? Well, first of all, I think that the love of the scriptures, hmm. these men love the word of God. And uh, Pat, that was Patrick's own bequest really to the Celtic church. Well, as you go through the confession, you don't find him mentioning any other book but the Bible. John Wesley used to call himself a man of one book, but that is very, that's uh, that's certainly not true in one sense of Wesley, who was an avid reader of all kinds of stuff, but it is very true of Patrick. Some of it's got to do with the the way in which his education was cut short at the age of 16. His He struggles with Latin. He ends up going to Ar- being taken to Ireland and he has to learn old Irish and he struggles in writing Latin but he passes down this passion for the word of God. And the Irish, the Irish monasteries are the only places in Europe in the five, six hundreds where there would have been any knowledge at all, Western Europe, that is, any knowledge of Greek. It's absolutely amazing that this area of, of Europe that had been probably totally illiterate virtually becomes the most literate area. Uh, one of the benefits of of mission was was just the literacy of the of the Irish, and the the love of the scriptures, and then secondly, the I think the friendship these men did not go out by themselves. They went they went in groups. The importance of support in mission, that mission is to be done ideally by a number of individuals going out to these various areas. Every evidence we have is that usually it'd be five or six men. Uh, would go out into it's not just it's not just we remember columbanus but he goes with companions mm. and likewise columba uh, goes with i think it's a dozen men to establish the mission on iona and so that's also i think something that we've tended to forget there are elements in the mission history of the last two or three hundred years since the modern missionary movement began uh which are reminiscent of this uh, one of them being the serampore trio uh, william carey um, Joshua Marshall and William Ward and others in in India. I'm not sure if uh, Kerry would have learned this from Patrick. He does know of Patrick's mission, is quite impressed by it. But that certainly is, is something that we could replicate. So the, the centrality of the Word of God and the the importance of mission being a, a group effort or mm. a, a number of individuals being involved. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you know, even when we think about the Apostle Paul, right? We all know about Paul. Yes. We forget that he had many associates, many friends, part of his apostolic band who were traveling with him. And yeah, so it's good to hear that that the, the Celts were also doing the same thing. All right, Dr. Haken, last question for you. Obviously, there's a long history of Christianity in this area that we're talking about. But even to this day, we still have missionaries who are being sent to work in Ireland and Scotland and England and these different places. What is a, a word of encouragement that you might give to missionaries who are currently serving in these contexts? 
Well, just the the remarkable impact that Patrick has and Columba has and Columbanus has, it would not have been seen immediately. But over time, God honored the word that they they shared and preached. And the, that word, it was that word that brought men and women to faith in Christ. And so I would encourage those. And I, I know I know men and women who are in Ireland. Most years I'm back in Ireland at least once a year. And likewise, Scotland and England, these these areas that had once been centers of Christianity now have to be re-evangelized. The trust in the Word of God, the Word of God is effective and effectual to save sinners and to complete, bring men and women to holiness and godly lives. Hmm. And um, yeah, that would be, a, I think, my encouragement. And that this is, one has to be in this for the long haul. We tend to want to see immediate results. I think partly because of the way technology is so brings swift changes in our world and that whole area of speed, which is part of our technology. But in the kingdom work, it's that long obedience mm. that is critical. Amen. Amen. Dr. Haken, thank you so much for your time and for the conversation today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.